it's maria and this is jordan welcome back to major musings welcome back how you doing jordan pretty well i'd say nice start to the new year how about you i know 2021 i'm doing good we an update to those who are potentially invested we've both submitted all of our applications oh yes (laughs) so now we're just waiting (laughs) yeah we've we've said to each other that we're both um excited but also a new kind of stressed yeah yeah it's just the waiting game knowing that there's absolutely nothing that you can do so if anyone out there is in the same situation we very much feel you yeah (laughs) we we stand with you in solidarity in this newfound stress yeah and we will be anxiously awaiting the the month of march when all the you'll definitely yeah (laughs) You'll hear back from us in a couple months about how we're feeling. (laughs) I know. Hopefully with some some good news, but yeah. Here's hoping. Fingers crossed. All right. So uh, this week, well, first, thank you to everyone who listened last week. We hope we... We hope you enjoyed Jordan's talk on Autobong and Kanga and maybe did some research of your own. This week, I am taking over and talking to Jordan about Salwa Raudashkir who is a Lebanese modern artist that was really kind of the turning point for me in my research. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you all about her. Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly was not familiar and I'm still not very familiar at all with her work. And I saw when you posted on Instagram and then sent me some other images and I am very excited to learn more. So this will be good. Yeah. Yeah, we were having this conversation earlier, and I thought, as I was sending you the photos, I thought, this is very much Jordan's style of art that she enjoys, (laughs) so I'm excited to have you participate with me as I talk about it. Yeah. So, to give a quick background, we've kind of referenced this in the past about how we found our research interests as we were in college. For me, my junior year was really the turning point. I knew that at that point I'd be pursuing modern and contemporary art, but I obviously had to narrow my focus in the field. So at that same time, I just picked up my minor in women's studies and I was starting to take classes at the department. Mm -hmm. And in one class, we read this book. It's called This Bridge Called My Back, Radical Writings by Women of Color. And by the way, to anyone who loves poetry and like short essays, I highly, highly recommend this book. It is so beautiful. It's so powerful. I don't know, Jordan, if you've seen it or no. read it. I definitely recommend it. Yeah. Okay. It's very beautiful. It's very powerful. So, you know, as the title suggests, it is a collection of short essays and poems written by women of color documenting their experiences, primarily experiences in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of them are immigrants, so they really tackle that as well. So for me, what really moved me the most was a paragraph in the introduction of the book by the editor. Her name is Cherry Moraga, and this is what she said. It is not always a matter of the actual bodies in the room, but of a life dedicated to a growing awareness of who and what is missing in that room Mm. and responding to that absence. What ideas never surface because we imagine we already have all the answers. Wow. So, yeah, so that, when I read that, it just hit me. Mm -hmm. That that, that That was a kind of wake up call for me because... 
up until that point, most of my coursework, most of our coursework, and then my personal research never really included Arab artists before then. Okay. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that even as I was growing up in Lebanon, I I didn't really know anything about art of my region. I was never really oh. exposed to it. Yeah, I only oh. ever saw, you know, the the ancient forms of art, the traditional form right. of Islamic art. You know, that's that's usually the archetype that you see. Um, but in terms of modern and contemporary art, I, it felt like a foreign concept up until a few years ago. Yeah. So, you know, it's some it's a field in the Arab world that's so vast yet so underrepresented and that's that that moment was when I decided okay I'm committing to this this is what I'm gonna do that's so, awesome that's yeah so <laughs> um so Shuker is very personal to me because the research I did on her was really that first step after I'd made that commitment. I was taking a class called Gender and Sexuality of the, of the Avant-Garde. And even though we mostly focused on European art, my professor was super encouraging when I asked her if I'd be able to conduct research on an Arab artist. Mm-hmm. So that class... Even now, it's one of the most memorable courses in art history I've taken. It was a very unique approach. Yeah, so basically what we did was we had to choose a woman or a queer artist that's been underrepresented in the past and dedicate our semester to researching that artist. Oh, wow. Yeah, so then... At the same time, for those familiar with this event, the Harn Museum in Gainesville hosts every year a Wikipedia edit-a-thon. Um, and basically what happens is that you go to the museum and they have laptops set up, or you can bring your own laptop, obviously, and you edit the Wikipedia page of an artist who hasn't really, doesn't really have the best page. <laughs> so... That was incorporated into the coursework, and when I looked up Shker's Wikipedia page, oh my gosh. (laughs) Nothing? I I was so disappointed. It was so short. It had minimal information about her. I was incredibly frustrated because I remember immediately after I did that, I looked up Picasso's page, and it's literally a novel. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure. it's insane. Like the binary there, it's such a huge problem, you know, oh, the, yeah. the fact that there's this underrepresentation and it's so blatant and it's out mm-hmm. there, you know? Yeah. So I felt really, really excited. I'm like, okay, I'm going to change this. So yeah. if you, if you go to Scare's Wikipedia page now, a lot of what you'll read is what I wrote and added <gasps> to beef it up. Ooh, yeah. Exciting. Everyone go I check know. out the Wikipedia page. There you go. I'm... <laughs> Wikipedia, where anyone can sign in and make edits. But no, I promise that mine are mine are pretty accurate, I would say. I did a lot of work on this. I'm so, sure. I'm sure they're amazing. Um, yeah, I, I've always thought that I want to go back to it and add more. So maybe I'll do that while, while we're sitting and waiting for grad applications. <laughs> hey, might as well. That's, that's really cool, honestly, that Wikipedia... I, I mean, yeah, you always hear like, oh, Wikipedia could be edited by anyone. But in this case, like it's really cool. Like it's allowing us as young emerging scholars to take, to kind of like take art history into our own hands and update it on the internet so that other people can find information about these artists and learn. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, obviously Wikipedia has had its flaws, but again, there are genuine people out 
there like us who want to kind of have that experience and doing research and adding it and making it available and give regardless of the history of Wikipedia it is a very accessible and available source to so yeah. many people. So the fact that I can provide a good amount of information about an artist on there for anyone to look up, you know, that matters. Yeah. So. Well, I just remember even from like high school where teachers would be like, oh, like don't cite Wikipedia as a source, but use it as like your introduction and then find yeah. more research after you get an introduction from Wikipedia. So I think it's very, right. very helpful. And like, I mean, I still do that. I go there for basic information all the time because it's so yeah. useful. And then obviously you, f you can find more scholarly or journal type sources if you need to, but it, it is very helpful exactly. in terms of accessibility. Yeah, so I was very excited to be able to do that. And then, you know, at the end of it, all that research cul culminated into a final paper. So. The reason why I chose Shkir was because she is legitimately one of the largest figures of Arab modern art, and she's considered to have really introduced abstract art to the Lebanese art scene. So she died in 2017. She was 100 years old. Oh my gosh. I know. Wow. She, she lived a long life. I honestly... Oh. Uh, we were having a conversation about this before we started recording, but this is something I feel so regretful of that I didn't expose myself to her earlier when I maybe could have spoken to her. She oh. was literally a few months before she passed. On her 100th birthday, she was honored at um, a very famous museum back home. Aww. So she was able to be celebrated before you know, her passing, which oh. I think is really beautiful yeah yeah so obviously at that point I wanted to honor her in my work as well so it's it's interesting because as revolutionary as she was she didn't really sell much of her work until hmm. about 20 years into her career and okay obviously the recognition didn't happen until much later which goes to show the level of under underrepresentation that exists mm -hmm. um so it's interesting, but it's something that I got to learn more about. And the political circumstances of the time were definitely a factor with that, which okay. I will elaborate on later. But um, yeah, so to kind of get into more detail. So obviously the Western world's perception of Eastern art, as we've kind of discussed here and there um, in previous episodes, it is very limited. Uh, more often than not, we assume that Arab art is very traditional, that modernity is a foreign concept, mm -hmm. which is obviously very frustrating, um, <laughs> and it's something that I want to change. And it is changing, you know, the, the more that I research and find of current scholars doing work, the more that that narrative is being changed, and I'm excited mm -hmm. to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, like on the contrary, modern art in the Arab world began developing around the same time as its popularization in the Western world. And wow. that's because, you know, the different move movements in modernity, they received international acclaim and they actively published their ideas on a global scale. So obviously anyone who wasn't living in Western countries did have access to what was happening and was influenced by it. Yeah. We've discussed... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say probably also the fact that a lot of, you know, some of the modern movements and the avant-garde things were happening in France and yeah. 
some of these places like um, maybe Morocco or Lebanon have this French background or where yeah. people people would be able to read and understand French and, and maybe exactly. be in, tuned in to what, what was happening. Exactly. And that actually, um, the history of Lebanon and France, that does play into Shukair's development and oh. practice as well. So I'll okay, get into cool. that. Yeah, so good on you for pointing that out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, we've discussed with previous works, with previous artists that, you know, many Western artists made their way to non-Western countries and for the sake of quote-unquote inspiration and <laughs> severely appropriated the culture, manipulated it in order to develop their own abstract forms. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, many non-Western artists traveled to or at least exposed themselves to areas of the western world and utilized whatever knowledge or artistic training they acquired to transform their own practice and Shkir was one of those artists okay yeah so she was born in beirut um she was born on june 24th 1916 so right as world war one was happening wow, <laughs> a great yeah. time to arrive <laughs> Um, and she is the perfect example of a non-Western artist who ambitiously explored artistic practices of modern art in the Western world and translated them into her own practice. So as a pioneering figure of abstract art in the Middle East, when you look, look at the way that she's developed her career, Schaer very much disrupts this West-Eastern binary because she combines both of them into her work and calls into hmm. question this one-sided concept of modernity, the Western concept. She traveled quite a bit. Um, her travels from the mid-1940s up until the 1950s were very critical in developing her vision. She sought inspiration from different parts of the world and she reflected that in her work, blurring the lines that were once meant to separate art making on a geographical and a cultural level. So one of the sources that I found for my paper and for my research was this interview she had with a woman named Nalda Latif, who compiled an array of interviews with prominent Lebanese women of the time and made that all a book. Oh, So Shkir wow. was one of the women she interviewed. And in that interview, she claimed that her trip to Egypt in 1943 was what cemented her passion for Islamic art and architecture hmm. and um, you know at the time World War II was happening yeah. so given that all the museums were closed she just roamed the streets of Cairo in Egypt and visited different mosques just walking around and looking at them wow. from the outside and to quote her she found them timeless in a high-tech modern age and already that's disrupting the narrative because when you think of mosque people think old or traditional you mm -hmm. know but instead she sees it as this very very timeless practice and one that can be introduced into the modern world and she wanted to recreate that feeling in her own sculptures and paintings interesting yeah yeah so she was very much dedicated to proving her belief in the strength and the relevance of non-objective art of middle eastern design so to focus on one painting specifically, um, it's called the painting two equals one. For those listening, uh, you can access that image in the third of the series of posts of Scare on our Instagram and Twitter, major underscore music, follow <laughs> us. <laughs> so this painting she did in 
1947, and it is one of my favorites of Scher's work. It represents the abstract forms of Islamic and Middle Eastern designs that Scher wanted to capture, and it also, this was not intentional on her part, but as time went on, certain things happened to the painting that serve as a reminder of the circumstances that the artist was living under while pursuing her career, and it shows us why it was difficult for her to receive that recognition during that time. Hmm. So I can I can see Jordan looking at it, so I'm... <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm... Well, I'll have you guess later, later into it, so I think you have an idea of what I'm talking about, but... Um... So if you look at the composition, I mean, you you don't speak Arabic, but I'm assuming you can notice that there's Arabic calligraphy in there to an extent. So I'm going to say yes and no. Maria, can you tell me more exactly about yeah, the calligraphy? So, yeah, so um, it does remind you of Arabic calligraphy to an extent, as I said. Okay. With like the, the, the forms and the curves? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So the forms themselves don't translate to anything, really. Mm-hmm. And that just goes back to Shakir's themes of abstract art. So it doesn't really translate to anything. But um, when you look at them, especially as someone who does speak Arabic, you will notice that there are certain letters and accents of the Arabic language that are kind of pieced together and painted onto one another. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's a, it is a very kind of... I guess we could say, I don't know, it's a very, it is a very abstract piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at it, um, the color palette is seemingly monochromatic. Uh, there are contrasting kind of earthy tones. You've got dark and light shades of brown, maroons, pinks, orange. And that is very on brand with her work in general, considering that her sculpture was also very simple and true to its original form. So mm-hmm. clay, stone, steel, um, you know, she never really painted on top of that. She always left the sculptures the way that they were. Um, so it kind of makes sense that with her paintings, she kind of maintains this very natural or very monochromatic theme. So when you look at the painting, you kind of can... your mind kind of individualizes each form you focus on them yeah on their their own but at the same time they all converge simultaneously Mm -hmm. so and that is when you take a look at um calligraphy in mosques you kind of get that same vibe you get the design and the calligraphies that envelope the walls and seem to blend together at a certain point especially if you're someone who doesn't speak Arabic, that is something that visually you will immediately recognize and piece together with respect to Scher's painting. Basically, what I like about it is it's almost as though your eyes are in, in a constant state of motion as you're navigating the painting. Yeah. You're connecting certain forms together based on similarities in shape and color or both. And, you know, you're all, you're, you can change the patterns in your mind however you want. And I think that's the beauty of it. A lot of my research for this came from a retrospective exhibition that the Tate Modern, which is a museum in London, did of her work in 2013. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but you know that feeling when you buy a catalog, like an exhibition catalog that just means so much to you? Yeah. I don't know if you can relate to that. Yeah. Which is yours? I'm curious. Honestly, it's probably been... Well, right now, this was the first one that came to my head. The... um. The Harn exhibition for the world to come, 
about oh, art in the yeah. Anthropocene because, you yeah. know, earth, the land, the environment. And then I took a yeah. class related to it as well. So I spent a lot of time yeah. with with that exhibit and thinking about the artworks in mm-hmm. it. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, so the catalog from the Tate's exhibition on her was that one for me. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading it, uh, I was reading an essay by the director of the museum and before I say this, do you notice anything with the painting? It, as you were looking at it earlier, do you notice something? Well, there's a lot of texture in general, I'd say, but then mm-hmm. I'm seeing something in the middle that is, is it a rip or a hole or? It's a hole, a yeah. A hole, okay. Yeah, so um, Scher lived, as most of us do back home, in an apartment building and kept all of her paintings and all of her sculptures there. I'm actually in in the link tree of sources on Scare that I will add to our link tree. I'm going to add two videos that the Tate put out of them going through her apartment and taking pieces with them to London oh. because then you'll get to see how all the work was stored <laughs> and it's it's very interesting seeing them so confused and overwhelmed <laughs> by it because our apartments are gen- the apartments we live in aren't always very big especially those in Beirut you know mm-hmm. at the heart of the city which is where she lived so she kept everything in there. And I remember that one of the conservators was just horrified. She's like, yeah, the electricity here goes out like three times a day. So the temperature levels damage the paintings. And oh I'm watching God. it and I just, I couldn't help but laugh. And a part of me thought, you know, if Scare was listening to this, she would also laugh because that's just so normalized for us, the electricity going out. And it's just so funny to me that her, as an artist, she didn't even consider that. She yeah. just left everything in the apartment, <laughs> which is incredible. Um, so, so this painting um, sustained damage from the 1980s when a very severe civil, the, the height of the civil war back home was oh. happening during that time. And as I mentioned before, this is one of the reasons why recognition at the time was very difficult because the political climate just didn't allow it. Yeah. So because she kept most of the artwork in her apartment, there was a bomb raiding one day and it went through into her apartment and glass shards pierced through the painting. Oh my God. Yeah. So you can see noticeable pieces of glass still stuck to the canvas and a gaping hole in the center that you pointed out. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. If if people zoom in when when you're looking at the post, so mm-hmm. that you can really see these these details. Because yeah, I yeah. some of this I can see how this would then be the glass shards. Wow. Yeah. That's there wild. <laughs> I know. It's it's when I read that I thought, oh my god, that's that just makes it mean so much more. And yeah. the the director in his essay he says it perfectly. He says that this painting bears witness to history, mm. which is exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Phys- physically it's there right in front of you. You see the effects of the war, and you know it's it's incredible. Not incredible. That's a such a. Not well, a positive word to describe the word. I mean, I mean more so like the poetic aspect of yes, it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. In that exhibition in 2013, you know, the inclusion of that painting is so important because, like I said, it provides viewers with a better understanding of why Scher didn't become widely acclaimed until much later in her career. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, she never wavered from wanting to 
convey the beauty and timelessness of both Islam and the Arab world. Mm -hmm. So two equals one marks the earlier portion of Shkira's work. Um, But before I go into later aspects, is there something that you want to add, Jordan? Yeah, I was just going to ask... Um, well, I have two questions now, kind of. Um, Shoot. <laughs> the first that I thought of was, I, so I know you said that, you know, during the 80s, obviously, she wouldn't have been able to really exhibit, mm-hmm. like, in Lebanon, but was she, did she show her work before that or in any other countries around, like, right after everything kind of calmed down, like, before she would have yeah. been shown at at the Tate or something? Like, was there an in-between period kind of for her? so, um, obviously once the Civil War died down, that's when she was able to exhibit more, but she did also exhibit before that. Okay. And the 1960s were a turning point for her, which is what I'll get into. This painting was from 1947. Oh, Um, oh, right, okay. Yeah. So there was, there was a gap. Okay. I forgot the (laughs) the timeline. No, you're totally fine. You're totally fine. Did you have a second question you said? Yeah, what what does the, the title mean? Do you know? Has she said anything about the title? I have no idea, actually. Oh, That's okay. something I've always wondered, but it's a great question. You yeah. know, if anyone has thoughts on this, feel free to DM us with your thoughts, and <laughs> we'll share them if you have any. But yeah, I mean, I didn't... I didn't really know if one thought that came to my mind one time with two equals one was because, you know, she loved painting, but she also eventually dedicated herself to sculpture. So I'm wondering because there are a lot of sculptural elements to the painting with the way she's kind of pieced together the forms of the Mm -hmm. kind, kind of calligraphy. So perhaps like two forms of art equaling one kind of like combining. Yeah, that's just a very extra way of thinking about it but it's a thought that crossed my mind no I mean it's yeah if she hasn't specifically said then obviously I feel like it's we, we should be thinking about all the different possibilities yeah. for why it's up for interpretation yeah and then I just had another brief thought which I don't know mm-hmm. if she ever commented on this but when you said how she she turned to sculpture eventually mm-hmm. I mean obviously I don't think anyone necessarily wants part of their paintings to be blown up in any sort of way or have any (laughs) sort of you know like tear or holes ripped into them but it but it is interesting how there's this addition to the painting now with like the glass shards in it and it does take on this this physical sculptural form more now and so I I agree it it would have been interesting to hear if if she commented on that maybe she didn't but alas I don't I don't know if she I know I don't know if she said anything after that but I mean I again it's something that I wish so badly that we could just reach out to her and ask yeah but it's one of those things that'll always be up in the air I guess we'll we'll never know, but we can always wonder. We can yeah. always muse about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> so yeah, so um, two equals one marks the earlier portion of her work, but her trip to and temporary residence in Paris between 1948 and 1951 was what ultimately launched the second half of her career and marked her complete devotion to architectural and geometric designs and sculpture. So at the time, Scher was aud- auditing classes in 
at the American University of Beirut. She was taking art classes there and some history courses, but she wasn't entirely fulfilled. Her brother-in-law was headed to Paris in 1948, and she wanted to go with him. She begged to go with him. <laughs> and so he took her, and even though he wanted to go back to Lebanon, she wanted to stay in France. And so she did. She joined Fernand Leger's atelier or art studio, and he was a famous oh. French modernist at the time. And she enrolled herself into the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, which is the School of Fine Arts. Um, it had a more conservative approach to art making, and when I say that, I obviously mean Western approach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she also took classes at the Académie de la Grande Chaumière Atelier. Didn't find the translation for that. But <laughs> that school welcomed those who did didn't get into the first one. So it's interesting that she was in both. Basically, yeah. she had one foot in the very orthodox establishment and another in the very long established alternative and also worked at an artist studio because why not <laughs> so all of this allowed her to master the techniques of typical western art making but you know she wasn't fulfilled with that she didn't really want to stay in that very limited space so she got to find this balance between tradition and modernity and eventually combined them with her culture and future artistic productions so mm -hmm. by the time she went back to lebanon in 1951 she dedicated herself entirely to sculpture and it's very interesting to me and you can very much notice this not just in her sculptures but also her paintings once upon a time she did want to be an architect and she's always had a love for the field yeah i you yeah. you can definitely see that a yeah lot. you can definitely see it especially in the sculptures many of them which i've posted um several on our social media many of them were titled poem um for you to take a look at they are very minimalistic at first glance but they do encapsulate just how devoted the artist was to her craft and to capturing this architectural element to the work, um, mm -hmm. especially when it came to using abstraction and, you know, transforming Arab and Islamic traditions and altering the West's perception of them in the process. So as I'd mentioned earlier, the sculptures are made of clay, wood, stone or steel, and she never really did much to them apart from the sculpting she didn't really change the color she didn't really do anything in that way she just let them be the way that they are mm -hmm. and when you look at them it's it's not it's not entirely a whole piece it's individual pieces that create this collective whole in the same way as two equals one yeah yeah you can you can really see it on some of the examples that you posted on instagram yeah. Yeah, and it's, it is a key theme in almost all of Scare's sculptures. So, you know, when you look at these, you look at them as a singular work of art, but then you start to wonder, hmm, what if you took this piece from the top, put it at the bottom, and then the <laughs> mm -hmm. middle one off to the side? What would that look like? So, you know, there's the, the opportunities are limitless in the ways that you could potentially set up these works. And... She kind of said this in that same interview with Nelda Latif, and she stated that her sculptures, especially those under the name Poem, were inspired by Arabic calligraphy and music. They were meant to be, oh. and I'm quoting her here, put in various combinations together or apart. 
Oh, wow. So so she had this in mind. Interesting. So then when, when they're exhibited, is there like a specific way that, that she's left for the, for the curators to, to put it together or is it kind of just up to them or? Yeah. You know, all I've seen is from the images I've seen, it seems as though the curators have kind of stuck to the way she put them together in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I mean, keep this in mind when you take a look at the sculptures and all the individual components, imagine what it must be like if a viewer was able to engage with these pieces to disassemble and reassemble them however you wished. I know. I, (laughs) yeah. I was just going to say, that's that's when you were just like, you want to go in the museum and just touch exactly, it and play with it. I know. Which I really, they haven't done this yet, but I really hope that museums who acquire her work in the future take this into consideration because because of how so how poetic they are and the fact that she says you can put them in various combinations together or apart, I hope that they allow a viewer to engage in some way because I'm sure that's Mm -hmm. what she would have wanted. Or at the very least, I think it would be such a cool idea for them to disassemble and reassemble it themselves every few days so that anytime you walk in, it looks different and it shows you the possibilities. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of curatorial choices that could be done to make just, yeah, to make these so engaging for yeah, for the viewer exactly. in a way that sometimes sculpture isn't in, in yeah. my opinion I don't know but wow that's that's really neat yeah so I mean to kind of conclude this when you take into account all, all of what she's accomplished by combining western and arab ideologies to create this new art form I think it's safe to say that You know, she is one of those first true Lebanese artists who practiced abstraction and modernity and revolutionized the movement there. And it's so important to recognize her and to recognize what she accomplished because any artist living there during one of its worst periods in history would have had to struggle in achieving any sort of success, which is why her career is so unprecedented. And... As an Arab who happened to introduce modernity to her country, she tore down the walls that had once separated different forms of art making from the other. So, you know, when while the main inspiration comes from Islam and the Arab world, she avidly combined all of her influences from when she was before she went to Paris, when she was in Paris, after she went to Paris, all of this played into what she created and what we see now. And it brought to life her belief of, to quote her here, a pure universal art that transcends the boundaries of culture, gender, or ethnicity to life. Mm, wow. Yeah. That's really amazing. I, I don't know. I'm just like, I, I really like her stuff now. And I'm yeah. very, I'm so intrigued and happy that you, that you are talking about her here. I'm so glad I got to talk to you about her. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've mentioned it to you while I was taking the class, but we never actually got to have the conversation, so. Yeah, that's why we're doing this, so we can, there you we go. can talk more. Exactly. I'm, I'm excited that I got to do this because I haven't been able to get into her work that extensively since I last wrote about her, which was almost two years ago. <laughs> so this was really fun for me to look back and 
just kind of remember how she made me feel and yeah how important that research was for me considering what I've been able to do since then so yeah oh I love that that's my spiel yeah (laughs) that's wonderful yeah like I said again thank you and I was really really glad to to learn more I'm glad (laughs) yeah so if anyone else wants to learn more Again, all the photos are on our social media. We'll have resources in, on Linktree. And as I said, because I genu- genuinely want you to look at these vis- videos, especially Lebanese people, if you're going to watch these videos and see the conservator freak out about the electricity <laughs> there, it's very entertaining. I highly recommend it. So I will include those as well. Just for you to also get an idea of how they took all of her work from her apartment and shipped it to London as well. It's very interesting. Mm, yeah, I bet. So, yeah. So that concludes the episode. Yay. Great. And then I guess I'll do a little promo for the next episode where I'll be talking. So, (laughs) so for this week, if you were talking about an artist who really influenced you and the direction of the research that you want to, to do in the future, then I'm going to go down that same path and discuss, yeah, discuss a land artist who I really love, uh, Robert Smithson. I I think I might have mentioned in the last episode when I talked about Nkanga that Smithson is probably most well known for his land art piece called Spiral Jetty, but Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give a an overview of some of the other stuff he did because spiral jetty is very cool but there's also some other stuff (laughs) as well so so yeah that'll be the next episode i'm excited to learn more i've i've heard you talk about him in passing but i'm looking forward to you giving me more information about him in detail and to everyone else yeah (laughs) so good times everyone hope you're all Hope all of you are having a decent 2021. Yes. Or a decent beginning to 2021. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, as always, you can find updates on our episodes and on images regarding those episodes on social media. So stay up to date there. But um, we'll see you in two weeks. Yep. Thanks for listening again. Bye. Bye. Bye.